Hi, everybody. Uh, welcome to the Cultural Studies Podcast. It's Toby Miller here. I'm with an old friend, Delbert Avelar, whom I haven't seen since, I don't know, Ages, maybe, or eight, eight, seven or eight at seven least. Seven or eight at least. And we're in Angelis, is that how it's pronounced? Yes. Here in New Orleans, which is a bar, but it's kind of, it's like a country bar because it's got lots of space in it, right? I don't know how to describe it. And which part of town is this? This is the French Quarter. This is the um, west side of the French Quarter, bordering the Marigny. Um, so we are between, we're on the, the touristy part of the city, but, but getting out of it. So when you say the touristy part of the city of Delbert, what does that signify to you? Because you've been here a very long time. I've been here for 16 years. 16 yeah. years, right, right. Well, I mean, in New Orleans, that means mostly the French Quarter, which is a place where we New Orleanians usually don't come to eat or to have he's, a drink. He's slumming it to do an old friend a favor. <laughs> <laughs> um, the, the French Quarter, for those of you who are not familiar with New Orleans, the French Quarter is a... Uh, square. Uh, it's six blocks long and 14 blocks wide, uh, bordered by the Mississippi River on one side, Rampart Street on the other side, which leads to Treme, that some of you may be familiar with from the from the HBO series, uh, Canal Street uh, on one side, which leads to the the more commercial business district area, right. and then Esplanade on the other side, which leads to the Marigny and the sort of more bohemian neighborhoods. And I can't help but ask about Katrina and this particular area in Delta. Well, we are in the highest part of the city. The French Quarter was not flooded. Um, Despite its proximity to the to Mississippi. Exactly. I mean, in fact, the, in, it's, it's counterintuitive. But in New Orleans, the higher ground is the ground that's closer to the Mississippi River. So the areas that are closer to the river did not flood, uh, even though Brian Williams said he saw a body floating in the French Quarter. That is uh, probably not true. I think it was his own body. It was right. a, a spectral projection of his career. Of his career. Um, so... Um, this area was not flooded. It, it, it was without power for a long time. Um, among the many, many, many attractions of the French Quarter, there is the oldest bar in North America, which is just two blocks from where we are on Bourbon Street. Lafitte is a bar inaugurated in the late 18th century. And a lot of people survived there on warm beer and sardines. Um, wow. But a lot of things changed in the city, of course. But this this particular area, the French Quarter, I get, one could say that it's the area that has changed the least. Right, it's right. pretty much it what was. it was. It certainly looks that way to me. Now, uh, please don't answer any more personally than you wish, but could you tell us a little bit about how you were affected? Were you around? Was where you live? I was, in fact, very lucky because I was on sabbatical at the time. So I was in Brazil. Um, but I was personally affected, not materially, but emotionally. Uh, I, I have friends who lost everything they had. Yeah. Um, I have friends who um, lost their parents, brothers, sisters, and so forth. I mean, everyone has a tragic Katrina story to tell. Mm. My story is more um, mundane. I was at, at the time I was starting with uh, working on on a on a blog that became 
quite successful for some time in Brazil. So my Katrina story was basically reporting what was happening um, to Brazilian media and um, using the blog to help find people. What was the what was the uh, title of the blog? The blog is called O Biscoito Fino e a Massa. Find Biscuit and the Masses. And it plays on a sentence by Brazilian modernist Osvaldo de Andrade, who at one point said, uh, the masses one day will eat the fine biscuit uh, that I produce, uh, meaning that it is possible to write quality material for broader audiences. Right. That there is no you know, necessary, necessary contradiction between, um, between communicability and, uh, and depth. Yeah. So that's what I was doing during Katrina. I was finding people, I was creating email addresses on my blog, I was uh, hooking people up with each other, uh, doing you know what I could from my desk. Well, that's great. That's great. I mean, it must have been, in one sense, frustrating, even though you were physically safe, to be so far away from a place that you're invested in. Yes. And so far away from loved ones. Yes. At a time of such crisis. Yes. And for a while, we didn't know where some of our friends were. Uh, some of our students uh, took a while to to turn up because sometimes they were safe, but they had no cell phones, for example. And Edelbar, I should say, is a very distinguished professor of Spanish and Portuguese at Tulane University, a private university here in New Orleans that was almost destroyed, whole segments of it, and where students had to go right across the country. I mean, they went as far as California. They were all over the place, yeah. I mean, they were all over the country for the fall semester. And we were not, in, in Latin American studies and Spanish and Portuguese, we were not dramatically affected. But other departments and other schools took huge hits. I mean, we lost several of our engineering programs. We lost our PhD in French. We lost our PhD in English. We lost about 150 doctors in the medical school, or 150 faculty, I should say, in the medical school. So, yes. So they left and never came back? Some people left and never came back. Um, some people were just terminated when their programs were terminated. And the programs were terminated because obviously a lot of money ran out because it's, it's a tuition-driven school. Right. It doesn't have huge endowment or big state funds. So if you have no tuition for a semester, that's a you're, complete fucking disaster. Yeah, you're in trouble. I mean, for the month of September... Uh, the administrators were actually thinking of liquidating the assets and closing the university. That's how bad it was. Um, they were basically in a bunker in, in, in a hotel room in, in Houston trying to decide what to do. September of 2005 was bleak for everyone in New Orleans in one way or another. We were, we were very uncertain. We didn't know what was going to happen. So it's, it's almost 10 years on, and I didn't come in here intending to quiz you about this, but I guess I can't help it. Um, and I'm wondering how you feel about the place now. And then we could maybe move on to projects you're working on at the moment. Right. Um, I have mixed feelings about it. I mean, I can't help think of all the people that have not been able to come back. Um, I don't know what the numbers are at this point, but I would say that at least about 100,000 people mostly African-Americans, uh, mostly from historic families, have not been able to come back. 
um, I can't help thinking of the sort of disaster capitalism that preys on these quote-unquote natural disasters because there's very little that's natural about Katrina. Um, and um, the gentrification that took part in in several areas. Um, there, was legislation, there was legislation, for example, that established the deadlines for people to start rebuilding. And if they didn't, they would, uh, they would lose their land. Um, New Orleans has one particular characteristic that makes it different from most American cities, I would say, that it has a working class that owns their houses because they've been there forever. So they've paid 100% of their mortgages because their families have been there forever, which means that they do not have to have insurance on their houses because their, their equity is 100%. Um, so a lot of people, because of their low-income families, own their houses and lost everything, but have no insurance and lost everything, or got cheated by the insurance company that would say, for example, if they had flood insurance, uh, the insurance company would say that, no, this was not caused by the flood, this was caused by the wind, and in these legal battles, a lot of people lost um, a lot of money, a lot of property, sometimes their, their lives even. So, um, on the other hand, it is still a vibrant city. Um, and it's the most interesting city in the United States. I think it is. And the most truly multicultural. I think it is. Because of its extraordinary history. I mean, the way in which you walk down a street, yeah. and the street name will change depending on the relevant colonial power of that particular quarter. Right. right? That moment, that block, that quadra, right? right? Right. It'll be Spanish, it'll be French. And then you'll find that the French words will be pronounced in English. Exactly. Uh-huh. You know, so... Yeah, it is a unique city, but... And it... it, it um, and it also, in addition to the Spanish colonial history, the French colonial history, it's a city that has a history of contacts with Cuba, for example. I mean, Cuban radio played a huge role um, in the first part of the 20th century. New Orleans radio played a huge role in Cuba in the first part of the 20th century. Um, there's a history of contact with um, other Caribbean nations. So it's, it's, it's really a, a port city with a very rich history any way you look, literature, music, of course, the food is world-renowned, so forth. We could go on, could go on about on. New Orleans forever. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And tell me about what you're working on now. What's interesting to you? I mean, I came in to see you reading a book. I love seeing people with books in there. Uh -huh. When does anybody read a physical book? What is the book? <laughs> well, called? this is a book uh, by somebody that I'm writing a tenure letter for. So, oh, okay. so I shouldn't, that, I shouldn't talk about. Put that aside. And we'll I, put that aside. I should say I, I yes. didn't see the name of you the author. You didn't see the name. I, I truly didn't. Um, <laughs> but that's um, why I caught you reading an actual book. <laughs> <laughs> well, let me talk a little bit about the book that I just published. I just published a book in Brazil. Uh, it's called Crónicas do Estado de Exceção, or Essays on the State of Exception, which basically compiles my writings on politics in the past four or five years. Um, I've been writing regularly for uh, Brazilian social media, Brazilian blogs, and also the Brazilian press on political issues the past few years, and I've rewritten those essays 
and uh, put them out in, in book format. They're really expanded from what they were. Uh, and they're all, in one way or another, uh, related to uh, procedures for curtailing democracy. The one-fourth of the book is devoted to uh, Palestine. I've been a solidarity, uh, a Palestinian solidarity activist for a while. So a, a one chunk of the book is devoted to exploring the vocabulary with which the occupation is talked about. Um, there's a section on the Nakba in 1948. There's a section on the bombing of Gaza in 2009. Um, there's a section on the Western media's treatment of, of the Palestinian question. So there's that. One-fourth is on Palestine. There's one-fourth about the United States. And it involves mostly explaining to the Brazilian audience um, how American elections are financed, um, how democracy has been uh, sequestered, kidnapped by uh, the power of money. Um, there are a couple of pieces on Occupy Wall Street. Um, there are a couple of pieces on the rise of the Christian right, the role of theocratic, theocratic movements in American politics and so forth. So there's one-fourth that's about the U.S. Um, there's one-fourth about Brazil. And it compiles my writings on um, the, mostly on the recolon, what I call the recolonization of the Amazon. Um, the um, establishment or re-establishment in the past few years of uh, a project for the Amazon that was concocted during the military regime. Uh, this is the military dictatorship in Brazil from 64 to 85. Correct. That also had the revolution within a revolution coup in a coup dictatorship within the dictatorship from 68. Right. right. And unlike other Latin American dictatorships, the Brazilian regime had organic intellectuals. It had a particular geopolitical conception of what the country should look like. And for the Amazon, there was a distinct project that conceived of that region as an empty, energetic colony that had to be populated and incorporated into Brazilian capitalism. And in the past few years, uh, ironically, in what is presumably a center-left government, we have seen the reinstatement of that, um, we have seen a reinstatement of that project uh, embodied in the frenetic building of hydroelectric dams, in the expansion of the agricultural frontier uh, into the Amazon, with particularly with soybeans, uh, displacement of indigenous populations, um, a whole set of issues that are very particular to um, the sort of developmentalist um, nature of the Workers' Party project these days. So there's quite a bit about that. Um, there's quite a bit about the financing of elections in Brazil as well, uh, which, is, which I see as a source of all corruption. Um, the fact that Basically, the great financiers of electoral campaigns in Brazil are construction companies. 
So the, the high, the, and this ties up with the question of the Amazon because, in fact, you build hydroelectric dams not because we need more electric energy. We build hydroelectric dams because the parties in power need to pay their campaign debts. And the way they pay their campaign debts is by contracting these... Um, and which, I, I mean, parenthetically, that presumably relates to the World Cup of Men's Football and the Olympics. Correct. And the sweetheart deals that have been set. Certainly, because um, the gentrification of Brazilian cities was one of the great legacies of the World Cup. And it is, in fact, the same half a dozen companies that are building these um, enormous stadiums or uh, these enormous apartment building complexes um, that are building the hydroelectric dams. Right. Um, so one-fourth of the book is devoted to that, to yeah. Brazilian politics, and the other fourth is uh, devoted to um, politics around Latin America and Europe, mostly the occupation movements of 2011. Um, so the there's a, there's a bit about the, the Spanish experience, there's a bit about the Chilean uh, student movement and so forth. Yeah. Which I think yeah. of as almost the Fonzet Origo of Occupy, right. but never acknowledged in the official account. Right, precisely, yeah. Um, so that has been the most recent wow. project. That's exciting. Now, before, just before we leave that, can I ask you to explain for Anglo-Parlante listeners the idea of the Chronica? Right. this is a... I think distinctly Latin American it is. invention that derives in part from the way in which the conquerors right. and colonizers did, did, did the census but also wrote essayistic accounts of what they discovered. Right? Correct. Can, can you explain a little bit about the genre of writing? Sure, yeah. That's, yeah I, I'm glad you asked that because um, crónica is not a word that would be um, correctly translated as chronicle into English, have nothing to do with each other. Um, chronica is a genre that flourished in Latin America in the late 19th century, but as you said, it harks back to the sort of personal accounts of the conquest. Um, what happened in the Latin American colonization is that, of course, unlike the US model, the Spanish-American colonization was centralized in the Spanish crown, and disputes over land, for example, were resolved with um, long, tedious documentation written and sent to the Spanish crown, and usually written in the first person. They were called relaciones, and that was the way in which uh, settlers would le try to legitimate their claims either to land or to anything else. Um, that created, in the Spanish-American context, that created an enormous body of literature. Um, if you go to Seville, for example, um, you will see immense amounts of documentation written in the first person, um, detailing land disputes, so forth, that that took place throughout the colonial period. The genre that we refer to, uh, the genre that we refer to as crónica, is tributary to that tradition, 
and it flourishes toward the late 19th century, and it is the genre that is um, the responsible for the professionalization. Thank you. Unfortunately, I poured it before I noticed that there's a chip in the it's ground. Fine. So Don't worry about it. Okay. No hurry, but when you got a moment, really no hurry. Uh, and it's the genre that is the um, responsible for the professionalization of the Latin American writer. The decadentist, Parnassian poets of the late 19th century um, paid their bills, basically, by uh, writing for newspapers. Things that were basically first-person accounts of um, life in the city. So one great example would be Jose Martí, the great Cuban revolutionary, who was in New York for several years and wrote for several Latin American newspapers, the most important of which at that juncture being La Nación from Buenos Aires, which had correspondence all over. And, and the Cronica is, I mean, as the name suggests, it is an account of our times. It is a first person, more informal, um, essayistic, essayistic, we might say, type of text that can address anything. You can write a chronica about anything. There's no uh, limitation on the subject matter. But the idea is that it's a non-fictional, first-person, essayistic type of text. And the public intellectual at work. Now, what about the version of this you get in Portuguese America, if I can use that term? I mean, specifically Brazil. It is more or less the same Although I would say that in Brazil you have a, a more of a tradition of a slightly more literary take on things. So um, a lot of the Brazilian cronistas were also poets. Carlos Drummond de Andrade, the country's foremost 20th century poet, for example, was also a well-known cronista. And in Brazil you, you also get a strong sense that the crónica is documenting the life of a certain city. So you wouldn't be able to tell, for example, the history of Rio without resorting to the crónicas. João do Rio, Lima Barreto, um, Paulo Mendes Campos, Carlos Drummond de Andrade, who was from Minas Gerais but, but moved to Rio. Uh, these are all writers who um, documented the, the history of the city in a very particular way. And before we get on to other things you're doing, I wanted to ask you about the transformation that you went through from writing these things as blogs right. to rewriting them, revising them, and slamming them together, but giving them both a conceptual coherence via the four quarters right. of the book, but also presumably some narrative sequencing or whatever. What was it like moving from blog to book? Well, the first thing that... Um struck me was to realize you made an old man happy. Thank you. Uh, I mean, the first, some, some things are fairly obvious. The first thing that struck me was that um, how short really people's attention span on the internet has become. Including mine, I should uh, including say. Including mine, I should say, unfortunately. Um, That's why I was so impressed to find you reading a book. <laughs> I thought, my God, he's immune to all this crap. Um, so all of a sudden, you know, things that on the blog looked like very lengthy pieces were in fact three-page pieces that 
that I could expand into seven, eight pages and still have something fairly digestible for a book. So the essays were significantly beefed up. I mean, most of the essays that had, for example, a thousand words became 5,000 word essays. Right, right. Um, there's a funny story about that. There's a, a new word in Portuguese. It's pistão, meaning big text. Uh, people are writing, I'm writing a pistão no Facebook. And, and people talk about that. Anything with three paragraphs is a pistão. So um, the poor... Poor um, José Saramago once said that in the age of Twitter, we were all sort of moving towards becoming completely mute. And, you know, people threw stones at him, but he was onto something. Um, 140ism. 140ism, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yes, the. The main, the main shock was realizing how um, how much the attention span that I was working with on the internet uh, was not representative of, of what I could work with in a book. Now, what about say paragraphing? Uh, the reason I ask this is that when I write for magazines and newspapers. They're very beloved of the one or two sentence right. paragraph, which can work really well, can also be batshit stupid. Right. right. So what have we done about I'm sorry to ask these sort of technical questions, but well, I mean I'm a, I'm a man of lengthy paragraphs. I like <laughs> lengthy paragraphs. Um, I tell my students that that uh, good scholarly prose. Um, should, uh, unless, of course, you're in a particular extraordinary situation, but but good scholarly prose should extract the most out of an idea before moving on to another one. Uh, and that's that's the way I still write my scholarly work. But the internet has done something to that. Uh, and um, and I've, I've taken a break from from blogging and from uh, Facebook and Twitter and all of that, precisely because I was beginning to get worried about my attention span, my ability to concentrate, my ability to develop a, a, a complex idea over 80, 90 pages, which is something that I really enjoy doing. And I want to get back to doing it uh, in my next book. Oh, that's interesting. Okay, so thank you for that revelation, because all too often, the discussions we have about the negative sides of the internet are moral panics about the right. other. Right. They're rarely about the self or right. the same. And they're rarely about a scholar saying, I think this is helping to shift the way I think and not necessarily in entirely beneficial ways, even though there are good sides to the openness of the communication. Right. So I think that's quite a gift. Thank you. Anyway, before I rabbit it on about what is a chronica, you were about to talk about other things you're working on or interested in, I think. Well, let me tell you about um, the first two things that I did that your listeners might not know. My first book was um, entitled The Untimely Present, Post-Dictatorial Latin American Fiction and the Task of Mourning. And that's the book that I'm better known for right, right. Um, in the field. 
it's uh, a book that came out in Portuguese as well, in Spanish as well, and it basically maps the ways in which Argentinian, Chilean, and Brazilian literatures dealt with the trauma of the military regimes. And it develops a theory of what happens to literature after that traumatic event. Um, the second book was called The Letter of Violence, and it's a collection of essays um, on the representation of violence in literature and philosophy. Uh, the piece in that book that has circulated the most is a critique of uh, Derrida's force of law, and how Derrida's reading of Benjamin in that essay is particularly problematic. So we can talk about you know that that past work if you'd like. Uh, right now I'm working on a book on masculinity, uh, and so that's going to be the next project. Wow. Well, let's go through those. Uh, and again, if you don't mind my personalizing it a little bit, uh, you grew up right under dictatorship. I did. And I'm not suggesting that conditions your book, but could you tell us a little bit about what that was like? Well, I didn't suffer it too much. I mean, I should say that I was born in 1968, so by the time I was, uh, by the time I knew anything about anything, it was the end, it was the end yeah. of the dictatorship. Yeah. Um, I joined political activism very early. When I was 14, I was already um, participating in what was happening at the moment as the beginning of the building of the Workers' Party. And at that time, it was still a military regime, but the Brazilian transition was a very slow it was transition. much slower than in a lot of other states. It was a much slower it transition. A violent transition. It wasn't a violent transition. Yeah. So by 1982, things were pretty breathable. Right. There was repression, there was censorship. Um, we still used aliases in our political work, just in case, but it wasn't, a, it wasn't an atmosphere of terror or anything. But by 1984, um, huge crowds were taking it to the streets to demand free elections, and that felt a lot nicer. That felt better. 1985, there were uh, indirect elections. Uh, it was not a full democracy yet, but it was now a civil government. Political parties were legalized and so forth. So, um, no, I didn't suffer personally any major trauma having to do with the military regime. Loss of family members. Loss of family members, none of, none of that. Um, but of course, I knew a lot of people who did. Yeah. yeah. And if you were, if you were doing left-wing activism at that time in Brazil, um, you certainly knew people who had lost people. And in terms of the literary world, tell us about the epistemological breaks that occur, the ruptures around this time. Well, for me, the most important one had to do with a certain uh, grandiose role for literature that was possible to imagine before the military dictatorships and that became impossible to imagine afterward. And what I mean by grandiose is 
the 1960s in Latin America is very much marked by what, the, what we call the boom of Latin American literature. Uh, the emergence of writers such as Julio Cortázar, Gabriel García Márquez, Carlos Fuentes, Mario Vargas Llosa, and they're all very different, but what they have in common is a very confident uh, belief in the role of literature as a sort of substitute for political or economic or social backwardness. Um, there's a famous sentence by Carlos Fuentes in his, in his book, uh, The New Latin American Novel, um, we may be socially and economically uh, backward, but we write the best literature in the world. Which a taxista in Mexico City would also say right now. Right. He would say, you know, los norteamericanos no tienen cultura. cultura. You know, North Americans, by which he would mean U.S. people, not Mexicans or Canadians, don't have culture. Right. Exactly. I mean, that doesn't go away, actually. It may, it may be that in literature it goes away. But the idea that we have civilization mm -hmm. in a certain mm -hmm. kind of Hegelian sense, and those to the north do not, that is right. still around. Right? right. But in the boom, I agree. I agree with you. That, 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 that idea is still floating around. I think what is particular to the boom is this movement by which that richness of the literary is going to bring us up to date with modernity in other spheres. It's going to be a substitute. It's a compensation. It's a compensation, right? So in, in the untimely present, I sort of developed this initially outrageous idea that it will sound outrageous to people that the boom ends on September 11th, 1973. With which the, is the real September 11th. Which is the real September 11th, or the first <laughs> September 11th, which is the bombing of uh, the Chilean presidential palace. Why? Because the bombing of the Chilean presidential palace represents the definitive defeat of the hopes of social transformation that characterized the Latin American 60s. And along with those hopes, there was always, in the field of literature, a hope that literature would in some way redeem social evils. That it would, it, it, that it would be a substitutive or compensatory uh, discourse. So there's also, along with mourning for the people that were killed, along with mourning for the ideals that were killed, uh, there's also mourning for a certain privileged role that literature played in the 1960s and that it was no longer able to play, even because the, most of the dictatorships in the region imposed uh, university reforms that completely technified uh, the university. Yeah, just, just to run through this very quickly, so a lot of people may not know that a vast array of Latin American countries, often with CIA involvement and State Department and Pentagon involvement, suffered quasi-fascist, and in some cases arguably fascist dictatorships uh, from, well, the middle of the 20th century, but in the particular in the period from the 60s to the late 80s. Correct. Yeah. Correct. And this was, this coincided with an alibi, which was that they could become satellites of the USSR, 
but a reality which was that they represented serious threats to US capital and military and political hegemony and the oligarchies that ran these countries. Correct. That's basically the story. And uh, the Chilean case is the most emblematic because in Chile, you indeed had a socialist experiment taking place through democratic means. Salvador Allende, uh, a leader of the Communist Party, was elected president in 1970 and was still very popular. In fact, in 1973, Chile held parliamentary elections in early 73, and the popular unity that backed Allende uh, had more votes in 73 than it did in 1970 when it, when it elected Allende. And I think in the case of Chile, it is also the case where the U.S. involvement was most clear. Um, the CIA was financing far-right groups. Um, Nixon was determined not to uh, allow Allende to triumph or finish his term. Um, there was systematic... Uh, boycott and sabotage of Chilean products and so forth. Um, so that coincides with, with a major rearrangement of what literature is able to do and what literature is expected to do. And cultural and, policy, and cultural under policy, Allende, yeah. was a, an extraordinary experiment. It, it was an extraordinary experiment. Yeah. Uh, you had uh, popular filmmaking blossoming all over the country. Um, you had, in the area of literature, which I know best, um, you had these great literary series that were basically reprinting classics of world literature and selling them at kiosks and reaching literally millions yeah. of people. Yeah. I mean, so for the first time, you had poets... <clears throat> You know, books of poetry being uh, bought by literally millions of people in a country of 10 million. So um, it was a tremendous experience. The working class gets access. Yeah. But there was also the idea of reversing the French maison de culture. Exactly. Such that it wouldn't just be projects of translation, but work done by Chileans, by Chileans. Who were traditionally marginal would be brought to the center. That was right. the other side. Right? right. So much so that after the coup, some of these literary series became, in and of themselves, subversive material, regardless of the title. So you could oh, have, really? oh, you could have, uh, yeah, there's one that's emblematic. It's called Kimantu, and it is a series of books. And there was everything in it. There was Dostoyevsky, uh, Tolstoy, Pablo Neruda, Shakespeare, what name, what have you. Um, but the fact that a book of that series uh, was found in somebody's home could be reason for trouble after, after the military regime. So, so basically, yeah, my first book is about that. What happens when literature needs to take stock of that very traumatic event? Um, so and, and what is the difference between taking stock of a, a longer, in some ways less violent dictatorship like Brazil's versus a shorter, extremely violent one like, say, Argentina's? 
there are several differences. Um, and I don't know if they all can be attributed to that difference, which is fairly important. The Argentinian dictatorship lasted seven years. It fell very abruptly because the military attempted one last desperate uh, gesture uh, at regaining legitimacy, which was the Malvinas War against the United Kingdom. And that was, of course, a complete disaster. Um, so when they lost that war, when it became clear that, we're, that they were being humiliated in that war, um, the, the dictatorship collapsed, in a way, um, by itself. In the Brazilian and Chilean cases, there were slow transitions negotiated through political pacts that that the mil over which the military had a pretty sizable, pretty considerable uh, degree of control. Yeah. Um, but when you explain the difference between these countries, you also need to look at their previous history. So um, Argentina is a country where political antagonism has always been clearly uh, presented, clearly cast, uh, unlike Brazil, where political antagonisms tend to be masked and negotiated and impacted in in ways that that would make no sense in Argentina where where there's always a clash between this, this is an interesting point because yeah. you get some intellectuals from Argentina from Chile who worry about what was going on before the coups who feel as though for example the identity I was going to say regime whatever right. you call it but yeah. elected democratic administration really rub things together in too much frottage to create too many contradictions and move too fast. And this led the way open. Right. To what happened. Right. To the bombing of La Moneda, to the treason, yeah. to the massacres. Well, but that's, I mean, that's the traditional story on the left, right? It's a retrospective reasoning um, that that one can make with any failed revolution, right? I mean, one could argue that, you know, in 1921, Lenin sped things up too quickly in Russia, and that led to Stalinism. We could argue that about Cuba. It's very hard to pinpoint why. And, I mean, uh, my, my explanation would be it was a political struggle, and, and we lost, and the other side was stronger. The other side... Um, we had the military and the CIA. had the military and the CIA. They had the mass media. They had a considerable coalition on their side. And, and they had a significant chunk of the country. They had about a third of the country on their side. And that was enough to create enough instability that, that life became impossible. And that it's not about over-stressing the contradictions. Right. Let's get back to the literature, because uh, I realize I keep veering you away from that, and I don't want to do that, even though I keep doing it. So... <laughs> we, we, can, we can... Who are the interesting writers in this epistemological rupture or the interesting blocks or for me? Uh-huh. Um, in Argentina, I worked with 
two writers that, that seem particularly interesting to me. Um, one of whom is available in English, by the way. Um, Ricardo Piglia wrote, I think, the most interesting uh, post-dictatorial novel in Argentina. It's called The Absent City. And it's available in English translation uh, from Duke University Press. And it basically tells the story of a journalist who um, finds a machine created by a former Argentinian writer uh, called Macedonio Fernandez. And that machine basically recombines stories. And he realizes that there are several stories that need to be unearthed there. And as he works his way through that process, he realizes that all of the loss, all of the trauma that the country has undergone um, cannot be dealt with except through narrative. And it's a great exploration of the relationship between narrative and mourning. You can only mourn a certain object, or you can only um, say that you have mourned a certain loss once you're able to tell a story about it. Um, so that's, that's one of the most interesting ones. There's another Argentinian text called uh, In State of Memory, and that's available in English as well, I believe, by Tununa Mercado, which relates her, um, her exile in Mexico. In general, some of the most interesting experiments have happened with popular genres, such as the detective story or science fiction. It's a very interesting phenomenon, particularly in Argentina, that the, the, the border between erudite literature and popular literature gets dissolved precisely because of the need to tell a certain story. At this time? At this time, in the 1980s, yeah. It's not the political economy of publishing, it's the wider political economy. I think, I think it's the wider political economy, yeah, I, I believe so. I believe so. So the top-down elite genres distinction of the avant-garde or literature versus fiction doesn't apply. And again, for listeners not familiar with this, the common rhetoric in Latin America is that Argentines are snobs right. uh, who look down on the rest of Latin America, that their constitution tells them they're Europeans, try to distinguish them. Yeah, right, yeah. right. So it's significant that they, not, not the Argentines we know, maybe not, right. but others, allegedly are the ones who say, we're the real intellectuals of this place. We are like the Australians and the, New, the white Australians and the white New Zealanders. We're in a place where we don't belong because we love it here and it's ours. But actually our spiritual home is Europe and you can rely on us because we are middle class and light skinned and we've done a genocide or whatever it is we needed to do. Right. Right? Right. So the idea of there being a collapsing of the distinction that you've just described is antithetical to that Latin American stereotype of Argentine. Of Argentines. Right? Yes, that is correct. That is correct. Yeah. And I think Argentina is the country that, it's the tradition that has gone the furthest in dynamiting that, that border. Um, it has had for a long time a very strong, very healthy tradition of 
the detective story. I mean, Argentina's foremost writer that, I mean, all of our listeners are probably familiar with, Jorge Luis Borges, a man who is known for his erudition, was also a great fan of detective stories, a great fan of Hollywood movies, a great fan of science fiction. And, and also a fan of the right. Of, right. <laughs> Although it's the enlightened right, um, with, such, such as it is. The, the, um, <laughs> with Borges and the dictatorship, there's a very interesting story. Um, he supported the coup, as most conservative Argentinians did. But he, in fact, was what you might call an enlightened British gentleman conservative, right? <laughs> um, he took very little interest. What they call in Britain a one-nation Tory. Right. right. Not a neoliberal. I mean, right. We have to be all right. together, and if we're going to keep running this shit, we've got to look after everybody. Right. Right. And um, he took very little interest in daily events, uh, never read the papers. Uh, this is a man, of course, who uh, was blind, Beginning in in the early 50s, he was already 100% or almost 100% blind. Um, he was not interested in current events in any way, shape, or form. But of course, what was happening in Argentina was so outrageous that news got to him that people were being tortured, that that people were being killed for no reason at all. And unlike many liberal writers who never said a word, towards the end of the military dictatorship, uh, Borges gave some, uh, made some really interesting and, and uh, Borgesian statements about the dictatorship. <laughs> the, my favorite one is he had said at some point in 1982 or 83, towards the end of the dictatorship and towards the end of his life, um, he said, the military regime is killing people in a very un-Argentine way. We Argentinians, when we want to kill somebody, we kill them face-to-face -face with a knife. Um, so, yes, he was a right-of-center conservative writer. He was condecorated by Augusto Pinochet, which is something that probably cost him the Nobel Prize in Literature. Um, but, but he was, first and foremost, an enlightened right wing, an enlightened conservative. Yeah, and as it happens, a genius. And as it happens, a genius, yeah. <laughs> I have a picture photograph of him with a friend of mine as a baby on his knee. Oh, wow. I know. I actually know somebody who was bounced on Borges's name. This could have gone in my tenure letter, but I didn't have the photograph up to that point. In any event, so uh, what you see in the Argentine case is this dynamiting as an epistemological rupture between popular and avant-garde, or not necessarily avant-garde, but literary versus right, fiction. Right. Highbrow, yeah, 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 high yeah. Genre. Right, I do, I do. Um, and in Brazil, you'll see that as well um, with writers such as Silviano Santiago uh, that you can also find in English. Um, 
that revisit, and that's another characteristic of that literature, um, revisits the history of the country in order to find allegories that would allow them to tell that story. Right, right. And Silviano, in a, in a remarkable book called In Liberdade, In Liberty, um, assumes the voice of a 1930s Brazilian writer named Graciliano Ramos, very important realist writer of the 1930s, a sort of Brazilian Steinbeck. Um, he, Graciliano is, is, goes to, is incarcerated by, by the Vargas regime, a dictatorship of the 1930s, and in prison he dreams of the rebellion of late 18th century um, colonial middle class in Minas Gerais, the rebellion called the Inconfidencia Mineira. And through that dream, you see that he's sort of allegorizing what's happening to, um, to Brazil in the 1980s. That book also bridges um, popular fiction and, and highbrow literature in very interesting ways. And can you tell us a little about Minas Gerais? Because it's a very specific and important Place. Right. Well, Minas Gerais is a um, state inland uh, in the southeast of the country. It is. It was the center of colonial life in the 18th century in Brazil. Brazilian colonization is essentially monocultural, which means that the center of colonial life shifts from one place to another. It happened, it's mostly in Salvador, Bahia, in the 16th century, then, uh, which, is the is, which is in the northeast coast. Um, then as the sugar, as the sugar industry blossoms, uh, the center moves further uh, north, along, still along the northeastern coast, to Recife, but the Portuguese were actually looking for gold all along, and when they finally find gold, it's way down towards the southeast in the mountainous area um, that today is called Minas Gerais, meaning General Mines. So the state is called General Mines precisely because the history is built around the, the gold mines that were, uh, that were found in the 18th century. It's also one of the two centers of the Brazilian Baroque, the sort of more spectacular Rococo type of Baroque, is the one that you're going to be that you're going to find in Minas Gerais. Um, it is mountain culture. Um, it's uh, the food is known also worldwide. It's uh, what we call troopers' food. It's food that's. Uh, designed to last a long time because people, you know, were walking for days on end. So, uh, lots of sausage, lots of pork, um, and um, it is where you will find the. It's where you will find the sort of Brazilian towns that will look like New Orleans, for example, that will look like the new, the New Orleans French Quarter. Um, or those of you that may be listening to us in uh, in San Juan, Puerto Rico, or Havana, I mean, that's where you will find the sort of 
that type of colonial architecture. Right. So you've got some interesting Brazilian ruptures that are breaking down these genres. You've got some Argentine ones as well. Right. Now, for you as a, I mean, I guess some of this work you did, I'm assuming, as part of your PhD at Duke. It is. Yeah? And some of that is not obeying uh -huh. the generic dictates not only of how books are organized in libraries or bookstores or one's thinking, but also how scholarly thinking is organized in many ways. Right. Uh, probably in the programs where you were studying this wasn't so much a problem right but at the time you were doing the writing this wasn't the norm across literary studies or Latin American studies I think it's fair to say I think it would be fair to say that yeah and this is one of the reasons why this book is considered a landmark by many scholars in the field thank you yeah um, and it was also I think a book that um, elaborated a paradigm to talk about present Latin American literature that was that was internal to that literature. And what I mean by internal is in the mid-90s when I started writing it, um, two words were being thrown around in order to talk about present literature from Latin America. It's postmodern or postcolonial. And the two discussions were very rich, but they were also very self-referential and tended to be very boring after <laughs> a certain point. What, uh, half an hour? 45 minutes? <laughs> I would say like 15 minutes. <laughs> after about 15 minutes of that conversation, and I was at the center of the discussions around postmodernism in the United States, which was Duke University. Jameson's book had just come out. Um, postmodernism, comma, or comma, uh, the cultural logic of late capitalism. Right. Um, so we were, that discussion was our, it was our bread and butter every day. And we were steeped in it, but that discussion um, had a way of always finding the same dilemma, which is, can we really call Latin American literature postmodern if Latin American modernity is not fully realized yet? Wake your vault, we would say today. Right. Um, the same thing with the, the, the entire body of literature that was coming out of subaltern studies and Southeast Asian studies. Um, on, on, on post-coloniality the same discussion tended to rehash itself um, can we really call Latin American literature post-colonial considering that Latin American independence has happened in the early 19th century considering that um, that they were not occupations in the same sense that African colonization and and part of Asian colonization was, so on and so forth. So that, um, those discussions were very interesting, but they had a way of not being very productive. And circling on themselves. And circling on themselves. And I knew, I knew what kinds of novels 
and short stories I wanted to talk about. I had the corpus. I had the corpus. I knew what was the literature that I found interesting. And then, uh, as I read around them, I realized that was what was unique about that experience was the fact that all of those nations were coming out of a dictatorship. I mean, it was fairly obvious, but the, the, the disjuncture between theory and corpus works sometimes in such a way that people don't see these obvious things. Right? So a lot of people told me um, that, oh, your book is very sophisticated, but in a way, it's convinced, the first point that it's convincing us of is very obvious, that we need to look at the internal logic out of which these works emerged. Right? So that's how the, the post-dictatorship came into being. Right, right. Let's just take a little break, if we can. So we've done what we needed to do. We're back live, or at least as alive as we'll ever do. Uh, so you got this critique of the book or the dissertation or whatever at some point that you were mentioning. Um, As in, we know all this. Well, yeah. I mean, the the the, the no. It was in fact a praise that was, that the book was saying something that was staring people right in the eye. Oh, but they couldn't see. That they right. couldn't That's see. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That was. And then, um, and I think there was a recognition also of a different way of dealing with theory. Um, that the theory there was embedded in in the argument in a way that, in most dissertations written at that time, was not happening. People were um, fascinated with theory to such a degree that it became this. They determined everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And what about the question here of, I guess, periodization and teleology? Because that haunts all the isms and the itties. It's, and you've already alluded to it. I mean, how does one think post-modernity as, say, in historical epoch, or post-modernism as, say, in artistic tendency, without the having been a before the post, and so on. And right. I guess this is, maybe it is a banal remark, as you intimated earlier, but some people say it is a Latin American thing to have had independence from the colonial yoke a century, in some cases a century and a half earlier, right. much of Africa, say, or Asia. Uh, but also to have skipped many of the stages right. because of another thing you alluded to, which is the mixing. Right. The, uh, the mestizo, mestizaje discourse uh, is not just an ideology that allows for a framing of class difference. It's a real ethnic and cultural distinctiveness that you don't get right. with the other places where the Portuguese, the English, the Belgians, the French, the Dutch, the Germans, the Italians were. Right. Correct. So it is really different. It is. And in the case of Latin America, um, as I looked at these materials written after the dictatorship, I noticed that I had to start with this 
massively important phenomenon that was the boom. Which is not just a literary boom, by the way. Yeah. It is this supposed, especially in Brazil, right. miracle of economic growth right. that takes place after the war. Exactly. Right. And that includes a whole discourse about how we are now up to date with the first world. And one of the gestures that was most characteristic of the boom was the, what I call the Adanic gesture. That we are for the first time doing X, Y, or Z. Um, that we are killing the European father um, by doing, by outdoing him in his own game, in a way. So a lot of the literature, a lot of the critical discourse that came out of Latin American literature in the 1960s was very disdainful of previous literature. It um, presented itself as um, the literature that was, for the first time, bringing Latin America up to date and so forth. So it was, at the same time, teleological, Oedipal, just killing the European father, and Adanic. Um, or Adamitic. And the dictatorships really represent the end point of that. Um, in a way, the dictatorships confront us with the need to have a more complex conception of history. And by the way, some of this discourse, not in all cases, was actually about the idea of a mixing of races that will produce right. Superman. Right. That the Nietzschean ideal would have, was in fact occurring in Latin in America. In Latin America, yeah. Harking back to uh, yeah. to um, Jose Vasconcelos. Can I have another Guinness, please? Okay, honey, you want another one? Um, I mean, I can quit any time, which means yes. Um, so yes, this idea harks back to Jose Vasconcelos, an important figure in the um, education campaigns carried out by the Mexican revolutionary state in the 1920s. And it is summarized in a book called The Cosmic Race. Um, La Raza Cosmica. La Raza Cosmica, um, which has this very bizarre teleological understanding of the succession of races that would lead to this fifth race. And was that written yeah. in New York, actually? Yeah. 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 <laughs> so, um, as these things usually go, it's full of contradictions. But, yes, so that it, there is no over-emphasizing the importance of the experience of the dictatorships for, um, for the rethinking of of history for us. Right. My father wrote a book called The Politics of the Third World. Mm. It came out in 1967. And at the beginning of the book, he says something to the effect of, there's nothing in here about Latin America for two reasons. First of all, it's such a different history. And secondly, I don't understand it. <laughs> you want eatable? I'm right. giving it to you. Right. Anyway. But in any case, um, 
what has been rewarding to me about that work is to find it meaningful to scholars outside Latin America. Oh, I just yeah. got back from Australia. I was in Sydney um, at the um, University of Western Sydney held a very interesting colloquium about transitional justice. And we were scholars from Latin America, South Africa, Nepal, Australia itself. Um, and it was rewarding to see that some of the arguments that I made about mourning, about allegory, the book is uh, a defense of, of the concept of allegory, uh, such as understood by Benjamin, um, were resonating with folks in South Africa, for example, that, that are trying to think through the legacy of apartheid. So it is at the same time an internal, very internal, very embedded in the, in the experience of Latin America, but it also, it's also a book that has been able to dialogue with folks elsewhere. Presumably in terms of the defense of allegory that you engage in there, you're also doing something beautiful in terms of Uncle Fred, aren't you? Um, I guess. I mean, Fred was such a... Uh, Frederick Jameson. I'm calling Uncle Fred, a person I've never met. Um, Fred was such a unique type of father figure because what's most remarkable about the experience that all of us had with with Fred Jameson at Duke in the 1990s was that Fred is, is a guy who uh, in, embeds in his own discourse the invitation that you pursue the critique of what he's doing. I've never met anybody more open to critiques of his own position by his own students than Fred. So Fred had a um, a piece um, that was lambasted all over the place called Allegory, uh, uh, Third World Literature in the Age of Multinational Capital, where he had okay. this... I'm going to let you carry them over the computer. Yeah, you're so beautiful. Thank you. No problem, guys. Um, where he had this... Enormously um, famous piece. Enormously famous piece. It's Olympian yeah. in its worldview, and therefore immediate, always already and immediately open to being shitted on. Right. Because it's always wrong. It's always wrong about some about other something. particular... Yeah. Right, right, right. Um, and in that piece... There was the sentence that was lambasted everywhere, which is, all third world literature, I would argue, is to be read allegorically. Um, and I have, I've, I've actually always defended that piece. Um, because one of the interesting things that's, that are happening there is that He's not saying that first world literature is not allegorical. Um, he's saying that it's just not aware of it. Um, that the awareness of the allegorical process 
proper to all literature, is made more visible in third world literature. And I do believe that. Uh, my undergraduate thesis, in fact, was on Langston Hughes. Um, and a great African-American, latterly thought to be gay writer, a crucial part of the Harlem Renaissance. Renaissance. Um, and what I did there was try to show how the subject of enunciation, the, the, the speaking self, was always collective in some way. Uh, so there's a famous poem by, by Langston Hughes where he goes on and on in the first person. I hail from the kitchen, da -da -da -da. That speaking subject, in the case of minor literatures, minor in the sense of Deleuze and Gattari, that is, literature written by a minority in a major language, in the case of those literatures, that speaking subject will inevitably be read collectively. That I will inevitably be yeah, read as... Spike Lee is always already an African-American filmmaker. He right. can't be an artist, he can't be a cineast. Right. Uh, to poor, he will always be a representative of this racial formation. Right. Um, and that allegorical dimension is very much readable, I think, in in the literature of post-colonial societies. So, um, even though that piece was critiqued in every way you can imagine, um, it's still a piece that I would defend. You're defending Daddy, which means that yeah. like me, I always jump a little. We'll go back, perhaps, to your second book. I want to jump to the masculinity project uh -huh. now. It seems quite natural to do that. Uh, not that I'm, not that I, I know nothing about this project. I've no idea whether it has either resonances. But why don't we talk a bit about that and then go back to the second book to finish up? Is that all right? Sure, that's fine. Um, the masculinity project is a project um, in which I've I've published quite a bit. Uh, there are a few articles that are already out there, and basically the overarching idea is to pursue a little further the question that has always haunted masculinity studies, which is the, the so-called crisis of masculinity. Right? Every time you talk about masculinity, uh, there seems to be a crisis hovering over it. So I started with very simple questions. When is it that people start talking about a crisis of masculinity? Was there a time in which any cultural formation imagined a masculinity that was not in crisis? And the obvious conclusion that you that you come to when you uh, when you read the cultural material is that the emergence of the concept itself is an expression of the so-called crisis. So then I map about 70 years, that is what I intend to do, map about 70 years of the depiction of masculinity in Latin American literature and culture. Um, so 
There is, for example, a chapter on Gilberto Freire, who is the foremost Brazilian sociologist, the author of arguably the dominant version that the country has about itself, uh, uh, based on a relatively sweet, relatively docile, relatively peaceful racial mixing. But that racial mixing is always understood as the coupling of the white man and the black woman. And there have been countless critiques of the ways in which Freire erases the violence proper to that encounter. But very little has been done on how he exiles black masculinity to the footnotes of his books. Um, there is a systematic association of blackness with femininity in Gilberto Freire. So, and in the mythology of Brazil, right. more widely, internationally. Exactly. Yeah. Please. No, I only uh, hear the telephone, but continue. Um, I'm listening. The other, the other chapter will work on um, on Borges, the great Argentinian writer who wrote metaphysical um, type of stories, but who also wrote knife fighting um, duels and what is characteristic of those knife fighting duels in Borges's uh, literature is that there is a code of honor proper to those fights, but that code of honor somehow never works. The characters that are able to establish themselves as respected men have always, in one way or another, cheated on the code. Um, so, the bully that acquires the fame as the tough guy in the neighborhood, uh, in fact, never had to face a real duel. Killed somebody from the back, but that was not seen by anybody. There's an interesting way in which the characters that are supposed to represent the code fail to do so. And um, the moments in which the code has to be applied, uh, the code also fails to do so. In other words, uh, that juncture between the code of honor and, and masculinity and the character that's supposed to represent it is always marked by some sort of disjuncture. Um, there's a chapter on a very interesting Argentinian writer who's not very well known, not even in Argentina. His name is Gustavo Ferreira. And he writes stories about paranoid men who imagine that women have some sort of secret, um, a terrible, dangerous secret that they're not privy to, that they cannot penetrate. Um, there's a chapter on, on, on gay masculinities in Latin American literature. There's a chapter on transsexual identities in, in Latin American literature. So it's, a, it's a, basically a book that maps the always already failed nature of the 
the myth of masculinity. And how the crisis is never ending. Right, and the, I mean the crisis is masculinity itself. And never beginning. Right. Right. Will Coleman, uh, an ethnomethodologist whose work I've never seen other than in one essay, has a really nice piece where he's problematizing the idea of there being a solid state functional hegemonic masculinity that dominates all and sundry mm -hmm. by saying that masculinity actually emerges at particular moments or encounters and his one is when a straight guy's partner is in the loo or in the changing rooms mm -hmm. and he's holding her hand back and he doesn't know what to do with it he doesn't know how to hold it physically he doesn't understand what he looks like or whatever. That's masculinity. Mm -hmm. That's when you really have it. Mm -hmm. So his exemplar is also always, you know, in crisis. That it's an absence of capacity. Right. Detail. There's a there's a, a section where I talk about these um, rituals of straight male bonding that happen quite often around sports, for example. Where I think you and I probably bonded over football. Right, exactly. When we first met. When we first right? met. I would say. Yeah. And in, in certain situations in those rituals, things happen between men that would never be allowed in other contexts. Right. right? Um, the hugging and the kissing that goes on in soccer stadiums in Brazil is stuff that would never be allowed in other contexts, right. right? But they happen there because the ritual depends on a certain silence, a certain silence around the um, codes that make it possible. The minute that, that, that there are some Argentinian short stories that, that work with this beautifully, the minute you start talking about what's going on there, the pact collapses. In other words, if I say to you, oh, I mean, I'm kissing you in the mouth here, I would never be able to kiss you in the mouth right, right, right. Um, downtown, um, then immediately the code collapses. So, so it's something that must not be brought into it discourse. It must not be brought into discourse. So the chapter I'm working on at the moment is on silence and masculinity. That that masculinity relies on the silence around some of the codes that, that make it possible. Right. I mean, I, I can't help but think of the obsession in U.S. colleges with male wrestling right. and the Greco-Roman style. I mean, I'm sorry, hating to be overly hermeneutic and paranoid, but WTF, dude. <laughs> right? Come on. Right. Right. I'm not condemning it in any way, but can we talk? Can we please talk about this? Well, actually, we can't. We can't. Yeah. The key to some of those uh, to some of those spheres is that it will function smoothly as long as silence is maintained. Yeah. yeah. Um, but you know what interests me when some of these things change. So I don't know when it happened in football, but in cricket. It used to be the case that when there was a play, when a play was made that was successful, 
you would shake the guy's hand or say well done or maybe a little pat on the shoulder now kissing hugging uh -huh. pat on the ass and that I know it changed about 40 years ago right and has intensified right some of that is actually regimented and required. It's instrumental, it's scientifically managed, it's Tayloristic, because we must show approbation for our fellow's success. Uh -huh. But in between that being codified and required as a managerial imperative, there's a movement over about 30 years that is an organic masculine shift mm -hmm. towards touching and kissing and so on. Right. Uh, where you've gone from this terribly polite, gentlemanly, standoffish mode of congratulation to, you know, humping people. Right, right. Right? And then it gets recodified as you are, you must do this because there's no I in team in English mm -hmm. and you have to show that you care about what the others done. Right? So right. There's a fascinating way in which this gentlemanly code becomes professional code. And in the middle is this flowering of bizarro overtly straight masculinity, as you say, doing things that cannot be done in any other context. Exactly, exactly, yeah. I'm not sure that much has changed. Well, maybe it has, yeah. I mean, I think in, in soccer, yeah, well, yeah, so yeah. So when, when, pardon the pronunciation, when Harincha right. is playing, are they kissing one another 60 years ago? Probably not. I mean, when, when, I've, seen, when I've seen footage of Brazil, in the 50s and 60s. Probably the not. Country. That's right. Yeah. It's, it's very... It's clapping. It's very gentlemanly. Yeah. 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 You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. It's clapping and... And then yeah. by around the 1970 World Cup in Mexico, it's starting in all the teams. You know, right. white, right. mestizo, whatever. Right. No? It's, it's there. But it's not there. You know, Pelé is not being thrown onto the ground and kissed and hugged. Right. And, in, and, and I think you hit the nail on the head when you mentioned 1970 Mexico because it's also the first time I can remember that after a win, players had literally their clothes basically ripped apart and were left naked, literally. I mean, Tostão was left in his underwear. Well, see, this is the yeah. kind of one of the playmakers in the Brazilian team. White, white, white guy. Right, yeah. the whitish guy. Um, and was the uh, the un striker, the uh, striker, yeah. kind of centre forward, but yeah. but a playmaker also. Also a playmaker. And not part of the mythology of the Brazilian team, but right. in fact, arguably the crux of. Right, right, a key figure in it. Right. Yeah. And Pelé as well. I mean, there's a uh, there's a very interesting footage of. Uh, of Pelé having his clothes just, you know, torn apart oh, and being wow. uh, and being carried in his underwear. Oh yes, yeah, I, yeah, of yeah. course. Yeah. I see that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, that is the uh, beginning of the mythology of the beautiful game and the mythology of Brazil as the responsible carriers of the beautiful game. Right. And the beauty of football as opposed to other sports. Right. Uh, of course, most of the time Brazil is a thuggish team, right? Like all football teams are, full of enforcers and violent people. That team actually wasn't. It's really right, true. Right, right. But that team had a goalkeeper and ten brilliant attackers. Right. Right. 
but maybe you could take the 82 Brazilian team, but most of the team since are full of thugs, you know, a, a, along with right, very right. creative players, like right. most of these Liverpool teams are. Right. But it sets a model of beauty in play. It's also the time when Pasolini writes the, the famous text on prose football and uh, poetry football. Yeah, that the Italians play prose football, the Brazilians play poetry football. And Pasolini, in addition to being a film director that people would know about, is also a very important semiotician and, of course, a gay activist. Activist is probably the wrong word, but. An overtly gay cultural icon. Right. So he has this, and at that time the Italians were famous for what was it called Catanacchio? The Catanacchio, the the sort of uh, ugly, defensive, uh, thuggish. Um, what would you call English stuff? <laughs> <laughs> right. And uh, whereas, and, and brought out of Catanacchio is their way of doing it now, which is they have a bit of that, but it's actually counterattack. It's, it's counterattack. It's very balletic and right. interesting. Right, and, right. Anyway, we're doing the male bonding thing now, which we're not meant to be doing, we're meant to be metacritic. That project sounds great. Let's go back, if we can, to finish off. Uh, to your second book. Uh-huh. Talk about that. That was, uh, that was not an organic monograph. That was a collection of things that uh, that um, I ended up writing for separate occasions and all, all of which dealt with violence in one way or another. Um, so the second half of the book is a lengthy meditation on the Colombian novel of the 19th century because Colombia has a very particular history. Um, it is the only Latin American country that doesn't get unified in the 19th century. It remains a collection of semi-independent uh, entities. So I look at the um, foundational novel of each one of the major regions of Colombia in order to recast the question that has haunted Colombianists for over a century, namely the role of violence in the constitution of the country Which and also, so forth. also helps to explain the mass internal migration really coming to upon that characterizes life under the conflict of the last 65 years. Right, right. right where there are actually whole sections of the country that have remained relatively specific. Right, right. Uh, in the context of the horrendous war. Um, and then in the first part, there is a theoretical, um, there's a lengthy theoretical discussion of matters related to war, violence, destruction, and the treatment of those concepts in 19th and 20th century thought. I worked a lot at Virilio for that book. It was a very interesting source of inspiration. Oh, these Catholics, you know. Oh, these Catholics. These true-believing Catholics. These true-believing Catholics who sometimes come up with these great insights. <laughs> and um, some of the insights were very uh, fruitful to me. Um, the notion that, that at some point after the, the Second World War, uh, we witness the end of symmetrical wars, right? The end of the Napoleonic, Clausewitzian model of the symmetrical war, where basically you have two comparable forces 
trench, clashing. Trench warfare. Trench in, in warfare. The Argo of the 20th century. And so forth. I mean, uh, one could argue that the Second World War was the last yeah. conflict uh, of that nature. The Pentagon and most national military forces have not caught up, caught onto this yet. Right. right. Uh, they're still organized around symmetrical war. Right. But nevertheless, and it actually has ended pretty much. It has ended pretty much. Um, so I worked a little bit with that idea. I worked a little bit with the idea that um, what you witness in the world today is a progressive conflation between warfare and law enforcement in such a way that warring factions um, do not represent their enemy as an enemy, but as an outlaw. That is very clear in the way that the Israeli uh, state deals with the Palestinian population. Uh, that is very clear in the way in which the U.S. state deals with Arab regimes. Um, so the, uh, the, a lot of the first part of the book is, um, is a discussion of, of those new paradigms um, to, understand, to understand war and violence. Uh, there's a discussion of the concept of terrorism, which is another interesting um, concept in this, in this context, because one could argue that um, states have developed their own terrorist way of dealing with terrorism. In other words, um, that the distinction between the traditional concept of terrorism, which comes from the, the Russian Narodnaya. I think we're okay, right? Yeah, check. Yeah. It's, it's on me, by the way. Oh, sure, please. You've, you've subjected yourself to the... Um, that the, the traditional concept of terrorism comes from the Russian Narodnaya. The, the late 19th century populists who uh, strongly believed in violence as a way of achieving political ends, their most successful operation being the assassination of Tsar Alexander II, which generated the Dostoevsky novel, the demons, or the possessed, and so forth. Um, up until a certain point, one could, uh, thank you, one could argue that there was a clear-cut difference between terrorism and counterterrorism. Um, that there was a clear split between terrorism and law enforcement. Um, what I argue in the book is that the beginning, inspired by Virilio, at least beginning at least with the Israeli. Uh, paratroopers in the Lebanon airport 1969 the state, state strong states dominant states have developed their own terrorist ways of dealing with terrorism um, all, and all of that is inspired by Benjamin by a, a, a Benjamin piece a very complex one so I'm not going to get into it uh, called Critique of Violence, 
called Critique of Violence, where Benjamin argues that um, the that there is that the state has developed a an apparatus that collapses the difference between law preserving violence and law making violence. So that's that's what the second book is about. Wow, that's great. Well Fidelbert, I want to thank you very much for thank joining you, Toby. Us. Uh, it's been, been a pleasure. As always. And I want to extract a promise from you, if I can. All promises are contingent, as right. you know. To come back to the pod when the masculinity book is out. Absolutely. It will be a pleasure. Right. All right. Bye.